This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host, and I am here in Greenwich Village in New York City, where all the exciting, cool stuff is happening. Um, But... Um, David, are we, you in a studio or? No, no, I'm in. I'm He's in, walking down Broadway. Yeah, no, I'm in my office, which is overlooking Joe's Pizza on Sixth Avenue and Carmine Street. Um, uh, and there's, as usual, there's large crowds of people at Joe's Pizza because they come there um, to sample the pizza that was eaten in a Spider-Man movie or something like that. But in any event, that's what's happening excitingly in Greenwich Village. Uh, <laughs> Rosa Brooks, who you just heard her voice, is uh, on the Baltimore-Washington Parkway, one of the worst stretches of a highway I know of, because it's always congested and awful, and probably is right now, right, Rosa? Uh, Yes, it is, David. Yes, it is. But (laughs) but you know I enjoy spending time in the company of of my fellow travelers. Well, yes, we've called fellow travelers before. Also in Washington, D.C., and therefore with Rosa getting closer and closer, we have Evelyn Farkas of the German Marshall Fund, recently returned from a trip to Asia, and recently returned from a trip across Scandinavia, Corey Shockey in London, England. (laughs) Uh, What was going on in Scandinavia that was so cool that it demanded your attention? Uh, So several things. So the first was the governments of Finland and Estonia, inviting a gaggle of us uh, ostensible opinion shapers to come have a conversation about their security issues and hear what they're thinking about doing about it, try and identify best practices for emulation in the West or for permutation to them from the West. Uh, And then I was in Sweden for the Engelsberg seminar. Uh, So the Axel Johnson Foundation hosts talking and I was talking about uh, the liberal world order and afterwards when I was in the bar at the foundation I saw a really kind of uh, LA noir portrait of Ed Luce sometimes <laughs> financial times commentator and sometimes participant in deep state radio on the wall that shocked me yeah well you sent that picture to some of us and um uh, I have to say, was wow. Ed looked completely <laughs> dissolute, and uh, uh, he barely recognized it as himself. Although apparently his wife instantly recognized it. As himself. <laughs> <laughs> and for this reason, Ed is spending this weekend um, in the Alps at a at a retreat. To work up. on his mood. Yeah, yeah, but he's apparently in you know the Tyrol someplace, um, uh, uh, recovering from whatever it was that made him look so noir. Um, So uh, one one of the people we were going to have actually join us on this episode um, uh, is our other friend, David Sanger. Um, And 
uh, he got he got called away at the very last minute. But I wanted to talk about something he wrote about. Uh, and since he's not here, you know, I, I, I you know I want to be nice about him. I don't want to say anything nasty, um, like the president did. When what? To David's article. Um, the president of the United States accusing the New York Times and, by extension, the author of the article, of which one of whom was David, of of treason. Um, uh, the article reporting that uh, the United States uh, Cyber Command was actually uh, attacking, infiltrating Russian power grids. Um, but that was not the only news made in this article, and I'd like to sort of pick each one of your brains on this, and maybe I'll start with you, Corey, and then we'll each go around. But the other thing in the article that I thought was noteworthy, um, buried down a, a couple of paragraphs into it, was the news that uh, Pentagon and intelligence community officials who were involved in these operations didn't want to tell the president because they didn't trust him, um, and they thought he might accidentally tell the Russians or make some judgment about all of this that was not good. And, you know, I start with you, Corey, because you're always very, very um, thoughtful on civ mill issues, but this gets you into a pretty thorny place, doesn't it? No, it actually doesn't get us into a thorny place. Uh, if that is, uh, I can absolutely understand anxiety on the part of our military and intelligence community about the comportment, discretion, and judgment of the president of the United States. But this is not a hard civil military call. The, neither the military nor the intelligence community uh, has authority, has ethical standing, has any constitutional basis to put their judgment above the judgment of whatever idiot the American public elects president. And so if that is going on, the president is actually right to be outraged because elected political leaders uh, are always the ones who get to make those decisions. And it's downright dangerous to the republic to have uh, people in the bureaucracy, and especially to have the wielders of clandestine operations and physical violence to substitute their judgment for the judgment of elected officials. So I'm super starchy on this one. It is no bueno if that's going on, and it ought to be knocked off immediately. And I actually... Um, while I would never, uh, never question the validity of David's reporting because he's one of the best journalists in the world, I hope what I read in the article was people expressing their anxiety, not reflecting their behavior. Because their right to have anxiety, if they are acting on that anxiety, it is dangerous insubordination to the elected officials. On the second issue that you raised, David, uh, the one of, uh, of are, have we penetrated and are we walking around in the cyberspace of Russia's, um, of Russia's uh, dams, electrical power grid, those kinds of things? I, uh, I hope we are. 
because what I believe I understand. So we at the IISS are doing a big project trying to come up with metrics to judge the state's capabilities to use cyber as an offensive weapon in war. And what I understand out of the research that smart folks in my organization have been doing so far is that the closest proxy for capable offensive use of cyber is the ability to be persistently in an adversary's network all over the place in an adversary's network. What I took away from the terrific reporting in David's article is that, hey, we're actually doing the right thing, which is uh, hanging around, being in, the, in their cyber networks in the way drones provide persistent surveillance over uh, seeable geographic areas. So that if we need to understand how to develop cyber tools for military purposes, we have the basis of understanding of how to do that and how to do it in a way consistent with the laws of war, consistent with our principles for the use of military force, that is proportionality, and it has to be um, integral to achieving your war aims. I, um, can, I, can I jump in to make a, to make a uh, quasi-legal point? Yes, that's what so, we rely on you. You're our quasi-legal And person. I have one too, even quasi-legal <laughs> after her. Excellent. Um, so, so, Corey, um, maybe you will think that this is a distinction without a difference and, and it is just a nitpicky legal point, but um, the, uh, the, the article that David Sanger uh, published in the Times a couple of days ago on this um, suggests that uh, although there is anxiety about whether President Trump, if in the loop, will, you know, give away the store to the Russians or tweet it out by accident or who knows what. Um, the, I, I don't think that there's any reason to think that uh, the law is being violated or even necessarily the, the spirit of, uh, uh, you know, requiring command approval because this is pursuant to one of two possible legal authorities, both of which apparently, both of which essentially dispense with the required to get specific presidential authorization um, for these actions. One, one being uh, a presidential directive to allow the head of cyber command to engage in a wider range of offensive activities without specifically seeking presidential author authorization uh, for it. And the other of which was a, a change in last year's um, uh, military authorization bill that defined uh, uh, clandestine cyber activities as being essentially traditional military activities thus not requiring, unlike covert action, not requiring a presidential finding and not requiring any sort of presidential approval, but being able to be approved at the level of the Secretary of Defense. There's a difference between President Trump saying, brief me on all cyber activities involving Russia, and the military saying, oh, oh no, don't tell him because he can't keep a secret, which I, which I absolutely agree would raise the issues that, that Corey outlined, versus the president saying uh, and or Congress saying, 
hey, you guys don't need my approval. Go for it. Do what you think you need to do. I, you know, I trust your judgment, uh, which is a different issue and creates a, its own set of problems in yeah. terms of oversight. But, but Absolutely. I agree. So not, the, appropriate, uh, the appropriate delegation of authority under law and with presidential approval doesn't raise the same questions. And it also, um, it also may be appropriate in cyber where you want persistence and, and timeframes are very short for action and things like that. But as you rightly point out, Rosa, it doesn't remove responsibility from the political leadership for setting the appropriate policy and the boundaries in which that's legal and appropriate. I should point out that Rosa is to, cutting to out. That, that's a somewhat more troubling issue. Yes, it's true. But I, I just want to point out that Rosa is cutting in and out precisely as she drives nearer and nearer to Fort Meade. I, 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 oh, my God, guys. Um, I am right this second passing the Fort Meade NSA exit. And, yeah. and I'm feeling quite nervous. That's hilarious. Now. Um, but, but no, I, I think that though Corey raises, I mean, that's a really important point, which, which very often gets lost. Um, um, and maybe I contributed to, to muddying the waters on that by saying, hey, this is, this is strictly speaking, this is not unlawful. Um, but I do think that one trend that we have seen steadily in the last uh, 20 years, really, um, has been the migration of more and more authority to conduct activities that, uh, that, that are not revealed and do not require express formal presidential approval. Um, I absolutely agree, Rosa. Another way to phrase uh, what you have just so elegantly said is this is an abdication of responsibility by elected political leaders to provide the appropriate oversight and set the policy boundaries for the use of coercive tools and for the use of violence by the United States military and by the intelligence community. But can I push yes. back? Uh, because, so first, the point I was going to make was basically um, the second point Rosa made about Title X, you know, of, of the U.S. Code, which basically delegates authority to the Secretary of Defense to prepare uh, armed forces to defend the United States um, and its interests in the eventuality of war. And so, as she rightly pointed out, once you have a decision in law which says um, cyber is a domain like airspace, et cetera, um, air, 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 sea, land, space, um, that they, they, then the it's incumbent upon the military to prepare defensively and offensively to fight. Um, I, it doesn't seem to me that there's evidence that somehow the administration has over, done some kind of overreach. I mean, yes, they are nervous about Donald Trump, you know, President Trump's response maybe to particular aspects of how they're implementing, you know, the law. Uh, and that's because the president is erratic. He's not consistent. And so some of it has to do with, I think, how he is on a given day, potentially. I don't want to speculate too much because I don't, don't know him. 
from what I've read, day to day, hour to hour, his response to topics can change. And so there, that may be an aspect of it, just his personality. Another aspect may be his touchiness when it comes to Russia. But I don't see any evidence in David's article or any other place that somehow this administration is overreaching in the cyber realm. And in fact, I would say, personally, I applaud them for doing something and being prepared to do something offensively. The bots that they reportedly put on the grids in Russia essentially are a deterrent measure, as far as I see it, against the Russians activating the ones they already put on our grids, you know, years ago. And so I think it was a necessary move because if we can't deter, what I've learned, and I say this as somebody who has learned this um, up front um, and personal, although thank God in the exercise world, you know, not in the real world, um, because I was out of the administration by the time we were engaged in like the bare knuckles with Russia over their intrusion in our elections. And, and I guess I can't talk about anything before that. But I, what I will say is that we were incredibly nervous about engaging in the cyber sphere um, in the executive branch um, when I was in it. And, I, and it actually created a more dangerous situation because, again, based on wargaming, if you can't respond at the asymmetric cyber level then what happens is you default to responding conventionally or some other way, militarily, usually. And that then obviously means automatic escalation. So to me, it's reassuring that they're thinking through how to deter Russia from some of the crazy things that they might do should they consider themselves at war with the United States and its allies. Well, and of course, you know, today, you know, you got a response from the Russians to this article, the headline the New York Times on that one is Kremlin warns of cyber war after grid uh, after report of U.S. hacking into Russian power grid. And just to follow up on your point, Corey, about um, the benefits of, of of kind of persistent presence, you know, which might be uh, to play on the old expression of being up in someone's grill. You know, you would you, you what you're saying is we need to be all up in their grid. Uh, on a regular basis, the, the you know the, the the reality is that creates circumstances of permanently heightened tension um, uh, that we're not a hundred percent sure where that leads, right? Corey, yeah, we're yeah, that's absolutely true. We are not certain where that heightened tension is going to lead. But I think we need to acknowledge that the heightened tension is not the result of the United States getting proficient, as Evelyn said, at a weapon of war the Russians are already using on us. Um, moreover, it's the political, it's the, um, it's the political tensions, not the use of cyber that are making this a fraught period of time. So, so I am less focused on the weapon we are using causing tensions than I am that the tensions are causing tensions. And that's why we're getting proficient at this. There, there's a little bit of a yes, but, um, and, and, and we, we don't know here. This is here. Here's the question is, is 
are cyber weapons fundamentally different from conventional weapons, right? Because if we think that fundamentally they're not, you know, and that fundamentally the types of activities, traditional military activities that the U.S. military engages in to prepare the battle space, blah, 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 blah. If we think that fundamentally there's no real difference strategically between the use of conventional tools and the use of cyber tools, then there's no particular reason not to extend to the military the same uh, sort of expedited uh, authority to engage in these activities without a very cumbersome uh, uh, congressional oversight process, without a presidential finding and so forth. Um, I, the, I think the big, the, the question to which we don't, do not know the answer, however, is, well, is that true? Um, because the fear, the fear and, and, and it's, I don't know that we have the data to know if this is paranoid or non-paranoid, but the fear is that um, cyber offensive actions could have a greater potential destabilizing and unpredictably escalatory effect than conventional actions and that therefore this is not a smart thing to decide that we're going to leave up to the secretary of defense or combatant commanders to engage in on their own authority without uh, elected officials having to weigh in uh in advance to approve it um and there, there's some sort of conflicting but stuff why does this. it i'm sorry russa go ahead no i was just going to say that there's 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 both a lot that has been written and hypothesized about the fear that this should be treated separately. It's in a different category. It should require greater oversight, not less oversight. Uh, there's also been some recent studies that suggest that so far, at least governments have been much more restrained than the sort of scholarly predictions expected them to be in reacting to cyber incursions made by adversaries and that we should all calm down. And, and I, I don't know the answer to that, but I, I would just say that I, I, I don't know that we should, I think that's still an open question, is cyber different? So David, may I uh, offer two thoughts? You may offer two thoughts. Definitely, you may offer three thoughts if necessary, and then Evelyn can chime in. <laughs> so the first is that, um, that, uh, Nothing that Rosa said precludes the elected senior officials, whether in the Congress or in the um, in the, the Oval Office, from setting the, the appropriate policy framework <laughs> in which the Secretary of Defense and his military subordinates can engage in these activities. Right. So, if cyber is a different kind of weapon, the president the president gets to outline the size of the box or the Congress gets to outline the size of the box. So um, it's still under appropriate civilian control, even if they decide to delegate that based on outline policy. The White House doesn't always have to be making the decisions. They just have to set the policy parameters for it. And they can do that um, for this weapon as well as they can do it for any other kind of weapon. The second thing, though, is that I think talking about cyber as a weapon is not as useful a conceptual approach as talking about cyber as a domain of warfare. That is, it's an area in which we are going to operate. And sometimes that is going to be a freedom of navigation exercise where we sail through to let people know we're, we're um, we have the ability to sail through. 
And sometimes you are going to want to blow something up. Uh, and so thinking of cyber as a weapon rather than an espionage tool or all of the other ways in which we operate in physical domains, I think is less, um, I find it, I find it difficult to get my head around cyber if we talk about it only as a weapon rather than if we talk about um, operations in the digital space, some of which are, uh, some of which can be weapons. I think that's right. I, I, but I, I think just to sort of further complicate it, you know, one of the things that makes this uh, legally and ethically murky on, um, is is that it's hard enough under the existing laws of war uh, sometimes to figure out, you know, what counts as civilian infrastructure versus military infrastructure. Who's a combatant? Who's not? In the if if we if we think of cyber as a as a domain analogous to you know air or sea or land, it's even harder to make any, any of those vital law of war distinctions in the cyber domain than it is in the existing physical domains. And that's part of the reason that that it seems to me not not unreasonable to fear more instability and more danger of escalation when we're talking about operations. In in the in the cyber domain, because the sort of the, the potential for unintended consequences, given our lack of familiarity of so-called civilian and so-called military uh, uh, infrastructure and and entities, uh, is so great that it, it does it seems reasonable to me to be more worried about it. And I and I guess in 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 theory, sure, the president. Can, elected officials can set the policy parameters. Uh, my worry is that in practice, a lot gets delegated and a lot of interpretation gets left to the military. Uh, and, and, you know, this is not the military's fault. This is, this is often, you know, in practice, the overseers don't always live up to their responsibilities, as we know. Okay, but that's true even in more in the use of more immediate physical violence, right? No, that's, the president that's absolutely sets a... right. So, no, so the, the only question to me, though, is if we think cyber is sufficiently different, then maybe we want to have a sort of tighter hands on the reins or whatever metaphor is the best one. That's probably not the right one, <laughs> um, uh, et cetera. Well, Evelyn has been well, uncharacteristically quiet here. So I just want to... Well, I... Yeah, I mean, I guess because I, I, I guess I agree with Corey that it's another domain. I essentially said that earlier. Um, and, you know, in my view, yeah, I, I, I guess I, I don't see that it's, I, I think that we have been operating with restraint because there has been this sense that Rosa's pointing to that somehow cyber is more dangerous because we don't, un because we don't understand it fully. Um, but I think that over time we've come to understand it better, or at least the experts have within government. And so that may be why now you see the emergence of, you know, offensive options for the government. But 
you know, the reality is we have no choice because the Russians have brought this upon us. You know, we can't, we can't unilaterally disarm ourselves. So we, we, we have to come up with some sort of responsible cyber policy. And in that sense, yes, it's no different from coming up with any kind of military po- you know, policy vis-a-vis use of force. So we have to be proportionate. You know, it has to be um, appropriate, proportionate, you know, all of the, 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 the rule of law, the just law theory. Um, and, and I think that's also why we've come to this point where we are using cyber offensively because we've realized that if we don't, as I said earlier, at least in my opinion, it could become more dangerous for us in other domains or conventionally. So let me, let me pose a question. I'll go back to Corey. We've got about 12 minutes left. Um, because, you know, let's assume that we use the definition of, of a domain. Uh, there aren't any other domains where we actually deploy inside the enemy waiting to activate the troops, except perhaps certain intelligence activities. Um, and there are few in which the um, difficulty attributing an attack is as great as it is in cyber. And it just brings me back to my point where we delegate a lot of this down. We put ourselves in a permanently on edge situ- uh, you know, footing, um, but where the stakes are pretty high. Because, you know, if all of a sudden a chunk of the Russian power grid shuts down and it's now a matter of public record that the United States has got bots all, you know, implanted in the Russian power grid, that could get pretty ugly pretty quickly. Right, Corey? Yes, that's absolutely true. But also missing opportunities to protect ourselves or to strike an adversary are also pretty dangerous pretty quickly. So I, I agree with you, right? Like having capable adversaries with weapons that can operate uh, inside our uh, comfort zone, domestic elections, power grids is deeply unnerving. Uh, so is our ability to operate inside theirs, but that's where we are. So Rosa, you know, with regard to this, do you worry that, you know, you take cyber, which creates these kind of situations, you take a structure that already delegates a lot of it down into the system. You compound the problem with the fact that most of the people at the policy level don't actually um, understand the issues that are involved or don't understand the technologies that are involved because some of them are incredibly complex and and arcane. Um, You know, are we set up properly to manage tension in this era of cyber conflict? I think we are not, and I think this is a subset of a broader problem that we have talked about many times on this podcast, which is uh, that we are at a moment when the types of both national and international institutions that we most need are, are are, are either at their weakest and have been damaged in, in part by U.S. actions or have not yet been created. You know, that this is an area where there, there, are, there are a lot of unknowns 
problems. Um, and what we have been doing as a nation is sort of trying to take a set of rules, for instance, the, the law, of, law of war rules developed for physical domains and trying to figure out how we translate those principles into the cyber domain. And the problem with that is that often they just don't translate, um, but we don't have anything to replace them with. So, so no, I do find it. I do find it scary. I think Corey is Corey is right. You know that that we don't have the option of just saying, "Oh gosh, it's all so complicated and scary. Let's just you know sit back and not do anything and study it for the next twenty years and think about it." Because meanwhile, our adversaries, whose consciences are are quite untroubled by any of these concerns um, are, are carrying on with their own activities in that domain, which could really be hurtful to not only the health of our democracy when it comes to things like electoral interference, but to, you know, to lives, to American lives. Um, so, so sure, we, and it, we have to be developing our own capabilities. We have to be thinking about both effective, more effective defense and about deterrence in this in this domain. Uh, uh, I, I, I think I'm really only saying let's not lose sight of the fact that we don't really know what we're doing. And it is pretty it is pretty dangerous and scary. Um, and th that is something I think we tend we we when I say we we our institutions, our political institutions, our military institutions, we tend to rapidly normalize um, new and sometimes scary technologies and, and policies. And we, we get used to seeing the words and memos. We get used to talking about it and we start forgetting how perilous they are and being much more cavalier about it. And, and I, I'm not actually suggesting that that is what we are doing, um, being cavalier, but I think that that's a kind of built in danger with these kinds of things. So I'm really mostly just making an argument that we, I sure hope we are proceeding with extreme, extreme caution and with due attention to all of the complexities uh, of operating in this domain where, where military and civilian uh, are almost impossible to, to distinguish because it does present uh, a set of legal issues, moral issues, and, and strategic issues that are pretty complicated and messy. Well, in fact, Evelyn, they're so complicated and hard to, we, it's not just hard to distinguish between military and civilian issues. It's hard to distinguish between um, uh, uh, types of attack uh, in, in the minds of the public at large as well as politically. And nothing illustrates this quite as well as what happened in the 2016 elections where you know, one of the things that the Russians did was they engaged in a disinformation campaign. And a lot of security people I know sort of yawn at that. And they say, well, that's, you know, we've been doing that all along. That's, it's just disinformation. But of course, given social media and so forth, the ability to do that at the scale it was done was not ever possible before. Um, but if then, of course, you know, there's some sign of at least testing the vulnerabilities of the electoral setup that we've got, the question becomes, um, you know, is, is that offensive military action, you know, it's coming maybe out of the military intelligence of the Russians, it's, you know, does, what does that warrant in response? Uh, what might be warranted in response for attack on the grid? I, you know, we don't have any doctrines in place on top of uh, 
of, of you know, people with expertise, et cetera, in order to deal with this? Well, I think, I mean, one, one point is across all domains, you know, when you're looking at a foreign adversary or foreign adversaries, attribution is important. And so in this cyber realm, as you rightly pointed out, regardless of what the actors are doing, whether they're stealing information and just using it for themselves, you know, um, let's say, you know, business corporate spying like the Chinese do, um, or they're stealing information and then weaponizing it and giving it to another entity to use against us like the Russians have done, um, or whether they're stealing, uh, whether they're getting in to the heads of American people by putting junk, you know, misleading information and pernicious information on the internet, onto social media, whether they're uh, using the internet to recruit people to go out and demonstrate, you know, all of these are kind of cyber action, cyber activities. They're all a little bit different. And then, of course, in the higher end that we talked about is the actually using cyber intrusions to cut off access to, you know, life-saving electricity, water, you know, heat, et cetera, which the Russians have done in Ukraine. And as we know, according to their doctrine, they would do if they consider themselves at war with the United States and its allies. So, um, yes, there are all kinds of different um, things that can be done using cyber means and the and the response requires attribution. And then it also re requires, as I mentioned earlier, sort of a proportionate response. And I think our military, our, our civil military, you know, policy, government, governmental institutions have been feeling their way around this since, since at least since the Sony attack, um, you know, trying to figure out, okay, what's, if once we have attribution, what's the right response proportionately to avoid escalation to actually, you know, strengthen deterrence. Um, we found that with the Russians so far, I don't think we've deterred them, certainly not on the lower end of the the spectrum of activities, meaning stealing information, weaponizing it, you know, putting out face, fake information, because as our intelligence communities tell us, um, they're doing this all the time still. But hopefully we can deter them at the higher end where it's more dangerous, where lives could be affected, where people could lose their lives. So um, I think you're right, David. It's, 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 a, it's a prickly situation, but like all other domains of war, I don't see it as historically that different, that just over time, policymakers in the military will figure out, you know, they'll come to a de facto doctrine or understanding. They'll come to, you know, feel their way to what is deterrent and not escalatory. Admittedly, it's dangerous. It's not a good thing, but we are where we are. So let me ask one final question. We've just sort of run out of time, but I want to sort of circle back to Corey's points. Um, that she made with regard to civ mill relations. And I would point out, you know, we all come at this from a different perspective, but as somebody comes at this from the perspective of sort of being historian of national security, I can think of several instances in, in, in modern U.S. history where um, uh, senior civilian officials kept decisions from a president, very, very high stakes decisions, for a variety of reasons. Uh, Nixon, when he was drunk and in the worst of Watergate, uh, being one where Haldeman and, and Kissinger sort of dealt with some things on the down low. Reagan, while he was sort of in his last couple of years and in his decline, you know, people in the NSC 
uh, kept as much as they could from him. But there, you know, there there are rules, and you're right to to be, as you say, starchy about them. There are no rules for foreign governments, and one of the things that strikes me about all of this is, if I were a foreign government, you know, a Five Eyes government, something like that, I I would be very reluctant about what I was giving the U.S. right now, uh, and that creates a further complication in all of this, does it not? Yes, I. I do think that's right, because intelligence relationships uh, fundamentally rely on trust and the depth and pervasiveness of information sharing among the Five Eyes countries. Uh, You know, it grew out of the Manhattan Project, and that was the foundation of the trust. and, And boy, I'd be worried about it, given the ease with which the president you know, considers himself the declassification authority for anything he wants to say to the Russians. Um, But the the counterbalance to that is that don't elect reckless presidents. It's not uh, built into the system a way to prevent the president having that ability. Now you tell us. (laughs) Oh, the don't elect idiots rule wasn't clear, David? we should have known that before. Um, <laughs> no, I think they would put some kind of warning label on the ballot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> In fact, that would be kind of great. You know, if we could somehow get the Congress to put a little warning label saying electing an idiot may be dangerous to your health. Maybe uh, bad for the country. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, let's. I'm sure Mitch McConnell will jump right on that. Um, all right, folks. I, th- I think this has been a very interesting discussion, even without David Sanger. We'll tell him that it was diminished by his absence, um, and um, that he. Uh, but his story provoked us in interesting ways, um, and that he's very handsome, and that 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 should. <laughs> Must we say the last part, given that he was a no-show for the recording? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. We'll keep that from him. Um, all right. But in any event, I think it was a good discussion. And for more discussions like this, don't hesitate to go to the DSRnetwork.com. Go up, sign up. There are many different membership options available to you. $10 options, $25 options, $60 options. You can donate. You can do all sorts of things to help us continue to do these things. We appreciate your support. We appreciate the enthusiasm that all you guys have for what we're doing. And we look forward to doing more of it. Um, in the um, months and years to come. Uh, in the meantime, I want to thank Corey in London, Evelyn in Washington, and Rosa, wherever she is. Where are you at the moment, Rosa? In the bushes? She, the car has gone off. The road. Dead to us, evidently. Uh, very sad, but we... No, will... no, I'm here. I'm here. I'm close <laughs> to home. Oh, yeah. Okay, we don't close. know what state I'm in, because this is that part of 295, where who knows what state you're in. Well, you're getting close to Alexandria, Virginia, on a day when the Supreme Court said that, you know, if the Virginians can prosecute people that the federal government has prosecuted uh, without triggering double jeopardy. So separate sovereignties has been upheld by the Supreme Court. So your next door neighbor, Paul Manafort, may be in for it again in Virginia. Um, Yay, Virginia. yay, 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 Supreme Court. And... There'll be more of that soon. Thank you, guys, and we'll talk to you again next week. 
Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.